0: You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Amen. So good to sing of God's faithfulness. I'm Mark, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I look forward to doing so, and, and uh, one of the ways we can do that is uh, if you would like to meet with me sometime during the week, you can uh, contact the office and set up a time, I block time out in my week to do that, so I'd love to do that if we haven't met, if there's things we can pray about or questions you might have, I'd love to do that in that way, and we as your staff, we just love you and we want to honor you in any way we can. There's a vicious rumor floating out there that we are having our first annual chili cook-off because I really love chili. It's true, okay? Just leave it alone. It, 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 it's a true rumor. Anyway, but uh, we're looking forward to next week. Hope you are excited about that. There's probably more details to come, so I won't, uh, I won't jump out of my, my lane there. Uh, we're, let's get right into the text here, if we can, and, and uh, a reminder of our theme verse here, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're going to be in Luke 7. You can turn there and be ready. Last week, we we touched on the themes of of worthiness and authority and faith. And and I believe uh, just looking at those again helps us prepare a little bit for today's text. Again, we have a centurion who, who hears about Jesus and sends uh, the Jewish elders to ask Him to come and heal His servants. And the elders say, hey, He's worthy because he's, He loves our nation and He has helped us build our synagogue. And yet, the centurion kind of says things that are contradictory. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And, and I'm not important enough or I'm not adequate enough for you to do that. But... Just say the words. See, he understands something about authority. Uh, Just say the words and it will happen. And he he understood from his realm of being a centurion that he can say things and things happen. And he understood this about Jesus. He had that faith. But what's amazing in this text here is that Jesus marveled at him. Again, the Greek term can also be translated to wonder, astonishment, or, or just simply amazed. He's amazed by the faith of this centurion. Again, I think this is a very, very big deal. Only twice is Jesus amazed by faith, and the other time is He's amazed by the lack of faith in His hometown Nazareth. So He's stunned. He's saying not even in Israel is there faith like this centurion has. And then we have this interesting visit to the town of Nain where Jesus and the Twelve, they come and, and they visit the town with a great crowd with them, and they come across this funeral procession. A widow's only son had died, and, and he walks up to her and says, do not weep. A stunning statement at an occasion like that. But then he says to the, to the man, arise, and he sat up. And we're told that the fear and awe of God caused them to glorify and praise God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They, they recognize authority. But let's go back to the worthiness. It's interesting here that the Jewish elders really falsely declare the centurion worthy. But he himself knew he wasn't. You see, we must remember that apart from Christ, worthiness is, is unattainable and unsustainable. Again, C.S. Lewis said, the the one essential symptom of the regenerate life is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural and it seems unalterable corruption. The true Christian's nostrils is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. We know that through faith in Christ and, and through His worthiness, we'll be raised to eternal life someday. He's the one who has the authority. He's the worthy one. He's the one to put our faith in. But do we trust Him with day-to-day life? I ask you to consider that. Today's passage might invoke a little bit of angst within us or trouble our spirits a little bit as we acknowledge what appears to be John the Baptist's bout with doubt, we'll call it. And maybe you find yourself asking, why John? But I want to suggest to you that this can encourage us. Realizing that even John seems to have doubt. How do we handle doubt? What, if any, good can come from it? And what are we trusting God for and why? We're going to see the importance of, of not basing our faith on what we think God should do or what he should, he, he should not do so we can stand strong in the wisdom of faith in God. We can ask God to sustain us in times of doubt. Lord, help my unbelief. So we can stand strong in wisdom and in faith. I think there's some noteworthy Old Testament connections that can be made here. I couldn't help but start to think about this even last night, which is frustrating because I usually have my outline pretty done by then. But anyway, let's read now. So, uh, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent him to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we commit this time to You, and we do seek Your guidance. We ask that Your Spirit would move mightily in each heart and in each life. Father, would You take this time and use it for your kingdom and for your glory because you are the glorious one you are the worthy one you are the one with authority and father we come before you in humility and and gratitude and we say great is your faithfulness father we ask you to work in a mighty way we pray that you just bless the east campus service today as well Lord, we pray for our global workers, wherever they're serving, encourage them today. And Lord, would you just have uh, the glory from our time here as well. We commit it to you in the name of Christ. Amen. So when we look at John sending his disciples with this question, we've got to stop and say, "What, what just happened here? Certainly this isn't John the baptizer asking this kind of a question. Wasn't it John that, that bounced in his own mother's womb when at the sound of Mary's voice? And, and, and he who said to the people, I baptize you with water, but one who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And isn't he the one to, to baptize Jesus and felt so unworthy to do so? And wasn't He that, that, that told His own disciples that He must increase and, and Jesus must increase? John 3.30. Many of you are familiar with our, our family story. You know that we have uh, eight children and six of whom are adopted. But you may not know that some ten years ago, we welcomed a beautiful 23-year-old named Lena into our family. She needed a new place to live because she was too old to stay where she was. The family didn't want to bear the expense of feeding her anymore, so we brought in Lena the horse. What, were you thinking something else? (laughs) I set you up. But she was given to us for free and super sweet, gentle, loved her. But we were warned when we got her that the previous owner said, Listen, if you're riding her, that's great. Just be cautious if you get her near cattle. In her earlier years, she was a, a prize winning cutting horse. So cattle got her attention. She'd gotten too old to compete, so she was literally and figuratively put out to pasture. She lived out her days in our property in Freeport. She lived well into her 30s, and I buried her there. So why do I tell you that story? I just wasted your time, didn't I? I Try to imagine what John must have been going through. Remember John? Again, he he was a child of promise, born to er elderly parents in a miraculous way. Uh, who were both of priestly descent, and, and uh, his mother was a relative of Mary. John, a Nazarite from birth, he understood self-denial. He lived out in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, a humble and plain man. He ate honey and locust. A man of courage. A, a man of honor. A man of humility. And more importantly, the forerunner of Christ. Really one who connects the Old and the New. The Old, the old Covenant, the New Covenant. He, he, in one hand, he's kind of got the Old Testament. In the other hand, he's kind of got the New Testament. And he effectively ministered. Calling people to repent and baptizing them. And again, he baptizes Jesus. But now John was imprisoned because he'd pub- publicly confronted Herod Antipas for divorcing his wife and violating the law by marrying his sister-in-law and niece. So he's in jail. Consider it. John goes from the season of ministry, the season of purpose, to being confined and unable to even observe what is now happening with Jesus. And I would suggest to you that essentially by being confined, he, he's sort of been put out to pasture in a ministry sense how frustrating and we can speculate that he began to question maybe everything was this is how this was supposed to turn out and he had to be saying am i done he's in his 30s he's in his 30s and he's going am i done is this all there is if this is jesus if he's the christ then why am i here He'd gone from extensive and productive ministry to being confined and and now doubtful. So now he's sending his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So is the mighty John doubting the identity of Jesus here? Is that okay? He asked, should we look for another Is Jesus not good enough for John? Look at verse 21. In that hour He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind He bestowed sight. And He answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk lepers are cleansed the deaf hear and the dead are raised up the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me right then at this time jesus is healing all people of all types of condition of diseases blindness evil spirits plagues and and this is going to get repetitious it's for a purpose It's interesting to me that that Jesus does not seem disappointed with John. Not even frustrated or hurt, thinking he of all people should know who I am. He just tells them to tell John what they've seen and heard. And it seems that he invites them to see for themselves and to report to John just that. Just note what I'm doing He says, what you've seen and heard, again, the blind receive the sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You're thinking, okay, you already read that. Yes. I'll explain later. I love that Jesus is willing to to send an affirming answer to John. He's patient with John's doubt, even compassionate No criticism of John's question here. He doesn't reply by asking why John, of all people, is questioning. And and, and folks, I think this gives us further insight into the heart of Christ. That even your doubt can be okay. But we need to learn from the response and Jesus responded to John's question by saying, hey, tell him what you've seen and heard. But he's also referring to the Old Testament that explained exactly what the Messiah would do when he showed up. For example, Isaiah twenty-nine, eighteen: In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. In Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. We, we could look at Isaiah 26, 19. We could look at, at Isaiah 61, 1, and maybe others. And I think we all agree that giving sight to the blind is no simple thing, right? It's no easy deal. Once again, Jesus didn't answer the question directly by saying, yeah, it's me. Just tell him it's me. He knows that. Rather, He simply gave them evidence of actually what was happening in the moment, but also tying it back to the prophetic words from centuries before. Saying, John, this is how it's supposed to be. You, You should draw this connection here. Isn't it amazing how People's own ideas can pull them away from reality. Maybe you've been there. Your own ideas, your own perceptions have pulled you away from reality. This is not how I imagined it. As though God is required to match reality to your imagination. It would seem that even John himself fell into this. Notice also that Jesus said, And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What does that mean? We'll come back to that. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. After Jesus responds to John's disciples, He he turns to the crowd now to teach them about faith and doubt. Among those born of women, none is greater. And as I've studied this passage, I've often wondered why Jesus didn't say these things in the hearing of John's messengers. What a wonderful encouragement that would have been to, for John to hear him say that. At least until Jesus makes his point. So he confirms John's ministry. He, 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 he's saying, listen, John demonstrated his strength and his resolve, his, his sacrifices for the ministry that he believed in. He confirms that John was indeed the one spoken about from that famous prophet, the Italian one, Malachi. Anybody? Anybody? Malachi, sorry, anyway. Malachi. Nobody? Oh, sorry. It's not my joke. I still think it's funny. You guys aren't getting that? Okay. I'll just conclude. Anyway. The, the messenger who would prepare the way before the Messiah. The messenger of the covenant. Malachi 3.1. And Jesus is confirming that, that the ministry that John had was a fulfillment of prophecy who was publicly affirming his imprisoned friend. Then after affirming John, he makes a startling statement. He says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, or he being John. Hard teaching here. And I don't know we can be too certain. He seemed to be comparing the blessings of those in the new covenant post-death and resurrection to those in the previous. Sending the message that new life after resurrection is going to be incredible. I can't be certain. Perhaps Jesus wants to honor John publicly in light of the fact that they may have just heard about John's doubt. Jesus reaffirms John and his ministry, but desires that his audience would see even beyond the one who's greatest among those born of women. Now Jesus' challenge to stand strong in faith in the, in the place of doubt and to be wise in choosing the object of our faith. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. These two verses here is sort of a side note, mentioning that those who had been baptized into John's baptism then tended to believe what Jesus was teaching. But those who had not been baptized into John's teaching, most noticeably the the Pharisees and the lawyers, the the experts in the law, rejected Jesus' teaching and along with it, God's purpose for their lives. Look at verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and, and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children." Verse 31 seems to point out judgment on Israel for rejecting both John and Jesus, both teaching the kingdom of God in distinctly different ways. And John had the reputation of being more intense, maybe violent in his preaching for repentance, but we must remember that repentance was necessary for God's reign on earth to come. As to verses 32 and 33, his point does seem to be that, that some people rejected John as his, and his message because of how they interpreted what they observed. And some people reject Jesus and His message on how they interpret what they've observed from Him. Differing interpretations. Sometimes, People play on what they expect and how they interpret it. And they're, they're struggling to follow Jesus and John's lead. It's my belief that, that really with this, this picture, Jesus is comparing His ministry to that of John's perhaps. Two different styles of teaching and, and the same message about the kingdom of God. John's message was a heavy one. Uh, repent. Maybe a little bit more like a funeral dirge, and, and Jesus' message may be more joyful. And I realize there's trouble with the text, and there's interesting ideas a way you can look at it. But these Pharisees—they they don't weep or dance. They demonize John. He eats no bread and he drinks no wine. And they consider Jesus' teaching and his ways scandalous. He eats and and drinks. He's a drunkard, a glutton, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Pointing out, listen, they weren't going to be happy either way. A little side note here. Commentary, if you will. I think we see this form of thinking even in Protestantism today. We hear, oh, they're too serious. Or we hear, they're not serious enough. Or they're too joyful. Or they're not joyful enough. They're too this and too that. And we need to be cautious there. I love what Kent Hughes writes. But what a grace it is to feel your need. What a grace it is to stand still as you mourn your sins with a dirge, confessing them to God and repenting, and then to dance to the music of heaven's free grace. Isn't that cool? It's saying there's a time and a place for both. John's message was heavy. Repent. But there's an, a place for that. When we come to the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're remembering that sin. We're grieving it. But we can't stay in that. We've got to leave that in joy. That first song I had dance in it. I started dancing. My daughter forbid me to continue. He's just jealous. (laughs) Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We can think that Jesus is saying that despite all doubt, the truth will eventually be revealed. At that time, those who were wise and believed in John and Jesus' message, wisdom's children will be justified for having believed. And those who doubt and choose not to believe will have their eyes o- opened in judgment. The children of wisdom find salvation in their faith. Although doubts may emerge, the wise live by faith. And our faith must not waver in spite of what we see, and in spite of what we hear, or even how we think in that moment. The wise live by faith. And the wise are the ones who have responded to this message, the message of the coming kingdom. Again, what do we do with this? And I want to circle back around. Okay, let's get practical, let's get real. What do we do with John's doubt? And really, I think the passage is best understood the more we understand John the Baptist and what was going on there. He's the one who, who recognized Jesus while it seemed they were both still in their mother's wombs. Incredible. But he's beginning to doubt. The same John who, who sees Jesus and, and proclaims Him as the Savior of the world while, while John was baptizing, remember? What caused John, of all people, to begin to doubt that Jesus was a Messiah? I think it's interesting that that John sent word via his disciples to ask if Jesus was the one to come or if he should look for another. Diane Chen points out that that, that the way it is to come, it really carries a messianic connotation. So this is a serious question. But apparently John continued to trust Jesus enough to get a straight answer from Jesus about who he was. Are you... The one who is to come, or should we look for another? So why was John doubting? First of all, he was human. He was human. We doubt sometimes, don't we? Especially when things don't go the way we expect. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about doubt. He says, Doubting is normal and healthy. It forces us to pursue truth. It fuels the believer's pursuit of real answers. And I love this. Makes deep divers out of novice swimmers. It's okay. It's okay. He was human. Second of all circumstances, as we looked at earlier, John was in prison. Not the best place to have happy, hopeful thoughts. A good place to have plenty of negative thoughts. Such as uh, wondering if Jesus is the Messiah, then why am I still here? If He can do these miraculous things, He certainly could free me. How am I sitting in here? So, He was human. Circumstances. Uh, Third, perceptions. The current thought of the time was that when the Messiah came, the reign on earth would begin, including first and foremost, dealing with and conquering the nasty Romans who were oppressing the Jews and bring immediate judgment on evildoers. But another reason for the doubt would be a different approach. Jesus didn't do what was expected. And add to that the fact that He was ministering to the Gentiles. What? He healed the servant of a centurion? A Gentile? This is enemies. These are enemies. Also realize that John was bold and direct. He didn't hesitate to call people out on stuff. He was sitting in jail because he called King Herod out, right? And of the Pharisees, the powerful religious leaders, he, he called them a generation of vipers. You don't do that. But he was bold. He was in your face. The short answer to the doubt that John and others were experiencing was that Jesus wasn't operating the way they expected him to operate. But now consider again Jesus' words. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This speaks to John and the disciples and others who may have been doubting and to us today. Who might at times ask, Is Jesus the One? Let me take you to the book of Isaiah again, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken they shall be snared and taken this prophetic word from centuries earlier explains that the messiah will be a rock of stumbling to the Jews and guess what's happening they're stumbling it says in that, in that prophecy, many will stumble on that and they will fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. This is not to be a surprise. And that's why Jesus here is saying, blessed is the one who's not offended by Me. Blessed is one who doesn't get so sideways with their own ideas of how things should be, who, who can, can grasp it. Blessed are wisdom's children who do not stumble and fall away. I want to acknowledge now what, what Jesus did here. Because G- I want to suggest to you is it's not that new. And last month I was in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and again, in Deuteronomy, it's remember what the Lord your God has done. Remember what you were brought out of. right? Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget. Keep it in your mind so that you don't fall uh, prey to, to all the other gods and the, and the idols. And in Judges, the Israelites failed to what? Remember. What did they fail to remember? What God had done. They didn't remember what he'd done. Jesus sends John truth in really two forms. What's happening right now, what Jesus had just done by the time the messengers had gotten there, he reminded of them that. But then He reminded John of the prophecy that said that's what He was going to do. He was going to give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And, and the lame would walk. He's saying, tell John what has been done, what you've seen Me do. And by the way, tell him in, in this phrase because that phrase will bring his mind to the prophet Isaiah. And John will go, oh yeah, that's right. Because that's what God said He would do. And He's done it. You see, Jesus is just pointing to the reality. And the reminder to the Israelites in Deuteronomy is remember, remember, remember. He, he, remember, he, he took you through the sea. He fed you with manna. He, he, took, he provided for you in so many ways. And, and, he, and He brought you out of Egypt. remember, remember. So maybe when doubt arises for you and I, we maybe need to go back and say, what have we forgotten? Do I need to just look back a little bit? Do I need to just open the Word? Do I need to compare the Word with what I've seen? Because sometimes we forget. Because what do we do? We get caught up in the circumstances and we get caught up in the, this is not how I imagined it or, or this is not, not what I thought or I, this isn't what I expected. And we need to go back to what God has done, who He is. And maybe if you already know Jesus as your Savior, you need to go back to that moment when you encountered Him. And then look at that journey, how God brought you to faith. If you're here yet and you don't, and you don't know Jesus, maybe you need to look at this and say, okay, what are you showing me? But I love that Jesus can do this. He can just go go tell him what you've seen. And by the way, say it in this phrase because that's going to remind him of the great prophet Isaiah. Let's remember who God is and what he has done and what he's capable of. This morning in our 7 a.m. prayer time, which you're all invited to, just follow the link on the email invite. Carol Plate shared these words from Ephesians: "Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work with him, within us, to him be the glory." We have faith because we serve and follow a God who is able to do so much more than we can even dream. And we might need to look back a little bit. And we might need to look at the Scriptures and look at history and go, yes, God kept His Word. He's great. And then we can let that doubt fall into the distance as we just simply say, Lord, help my unbelief. Amen? My time is gone. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we just ask You to remind us of who you are forgive us for the times when we only see that's what's right in front of us or what's around us or the the pressing things and we forget to look at who you are what you've done you're the creator you're almighty you're the sustainer and you are the one who has worked a plan of salvation for us through your son jesus and father thank you that your words that were prophetic came true in christ And we can say, look what God has done. Father, we thank you for the salvation in Jesus. And for the hope that we have. And the reason we have to put our faith in you. We pray all these in the name of Jesus. Amen.